1: do most of my old changes down there, have a cup of coffee, hang out down in Al Reno. It's a good spot to go. And not only are they great friends, but they provide a great service. So for over 60 years, third generation family owned Oklahoma business down in Al Reno. They're also in Bethany as well. So people in the Bethany area know the Diffies really well. But if you're looking for anything new, used um, Ford, Lincoln, or whatever, I'm sure they could find anything you want. Um, check them out at DiffieFord.net and then on Instagram at DiffieFordLincoln. And let's get into today's episode. What you're about to hear is part one of our incredible interview with uh, Colonel Stanley Evans. And uh, this went on for, I think, just over two hours, maybe two hours and 20 minutes. So breaking it up just made sense so so you guys don't have to just sit there or drive for two hours to listen to this breaking up part one will be today and then part two will come out in a couple of days but uh, just giving you a heads up around the hour mark it will cut and then we'll post part two in a little bit so please enjoy this incredible episode with colonel stanley Evans. it gives me great pleasure to introduce our guest colonel stanley evans who was inducted into last year's oklahoma hall of fame thanks for coming down
0: I'm happy to be here, and I'm a bit embarrassed already because as soon as as you were introducing me, I wasted water on my tie. <laughs> and Mike, That's all right. I, and Mike, I just want to thank you for doing what you do because you're a part of what's going on to make Oklahoma better. And to me, it's not about making Oklahoma better; it's about making Oklahomans better. Mm-hmm. So thank you, Man, thank I you for what that. you do.
1: Thank you. Well obviously this is something that you do now every day since i guess quote retiring which is not you know <laughs> if someone looked at your schedule that's not what a retired person does because you speak a lot you give back yesterday you know we were just talking you were speaking yesterday and brenda's got you got to speaking to kids and, and and people all month i think mm-hmm. uh, every week for for the next you know month or so but i mean before we dive into kind of your backstory, story, what, what keeps you going? I mean, you're 76 years old. A lot of people, you know, the general population would probably think, you know, I'm 76, I'm going to sit back and do nothing and might play golf on the weekends. But you're very active and, and you want to give back, and I'm interested in why.
0: Well, there are several reasons, but I want to go to what started it for, yeah. for us, even though I was accountable for. In 1997, um, Sandra, who's my wife, We lost our daughter. Uh, Our daughter was Lee Evans, TV anchor here in Oklahoma City. And when we lost her, it just, for lack of a term, wiped us out. Those people that understand me and I hope have the same philosophy, everything that you do should be about how you can help your kids be the best best people that they can be. Um, I feel that we were truly successful with Lisa, and not that Lisa's who who she was because of us. Lisa was who she was. And when I say Lisa, she was known as Lee Evans on TV, but Lisa was her real name. Yeah. Um, But she would do, she, even when she was a kid, she would challenge her. We lived in Tyler, Texas, and when we lived in Tyler, Texas, uh, my wife started a program to help kids there in every Saturday they'd come in and we'd have reading classes and math classes just to help help, help the kids who were in school. Um, Lisa was eight years old and we just said, Lisa, come come hang out with us just so you don't have to get, so we wouldn't have to get a babysitter for them. We'd look around and Lisa would be actually sitting there tutoring and helping other kids. Um, if you know me, you know that I flunked out of college. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't always the best person. When I watched, as I was watching Lisa grow up, one of the things that struck me looking back after we lost her, Lisa never wasted a day in her life. Lisa was always looking for people that she could help, that she could support. It didn't matter. If she could see somebody that she could help, she would go out and do it. Um, And so when we lost her, Sandra and I decided that we wanted to create other Lisas. And so by creating other Lisas, that meant we were adopting children. I love my children. I got children all over the world. But what we would do was we said a commitment that, number one, from this moment on, from the loss of Lisa, we'll never waste another day. From this moment on, every single person is important to us. Mm-hmm. Um, every person that I speak to, every person that I talk to is a VIP. And the, one of the hardest jobs I have is to convince them that they're a VIP. Because I want people to understand that they're here for a purpose, and they, and they should see it, and they should go after it. Sometimes that means praying, and I, I'm a very prayerful man. But what it's really about is understanding that you are important, and you got something to do, and you should go for it, and you shouldn't let things get in your way. And If you feel that way, not in a cocky way, but in a purposeful way, I'm a VIP, it puts you so much farther and so much closer. Um, so if you ask me why 76 years old, 25 years after my daughter died, why am I still going like I'm going? Because every single day I see opportunities to help other people change their lives, to help other people understand what they can accomplish, to help other people do what they can do. And again, God has blessed me in so many different ways because he has sent me so many VIPs and I just can't stop doing what I do because I see the opportunities that God has given me every single day.
1: Yeah, that's and and you know if for people who are listening, you know, and, and if they've read your bio and if they're aware of you, they will know many of these stories. But I'm also interested in. I know you grew up here, mm-hmm. but then why after you know you you retire from the military, why do you also decide to come back
0: to Oklahoma? Um, again, it goes into what we just said. Um, we, I wanted to, again, be somewhere where I could, I could, I could continue to, to live this dream. Mm-hmm. I talk to people all the time about having a 20-year dream. My 20-year dream is to watch my kids be great. Um, one of the things that was really important to me in the course of doing this is my wife, Sandra, and I got married, I think it was 11 days before I went in the Army. So all 32 years, she was with me every day. I will share with you, Sandra is much smarter than I am. She has a much better personality than I am, and she is flat out beautiful. So you stop and think why did this woman decide that she wanted to hang out with me? And I just saw so much more in her than me as far as potential. You know, she, she was um, um, number one in her class when she was in high school. Uh, we went to Oklahoma State University. The first time I met her was my first week at Oklahoma State. She's a year ahead of me. She gets a little bit upset about that because she doesn't like people to tell like for me to tell people she's actually almost two years older than I am. <laughs> but I, we were in, uh, in 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 the black community working just helping clean up a yard and a church, and the choir was rehearsing. And as the choir was rehearsing, the, you could hear the music. And so, being curious, I stuck my head in the door. As I stuck my head in the door, this lady playing the piano looked around, saw me, and smiled. I fell in love with that smile that day. Now understand this, I'm a nerd and I am pitifully shy. Even though I knew that I wanted to follow this woman and be with this woman, it took me a whole year to work up enough nerve to, to, to even speak to her. Yeah. It took me another whole year to work up enough nerve to ask her for a date. Then we dated for a couple years, and then she decided I was so slow that she needed to speed the action up. So she proposed to me. And when she proposed to me, I said, no, I want to think about it. Then she proposed to me again. I said, no, I want to think about it. She proposed to me again. And I said, she's persistent and she's not going to stop. So. I think one Saturday morning, I said, let's take a walk. We went walking downtown Stillwater. And I walked in this jewelry store. And I said, those are some neat rings. Which Which one do you want? She picked out a ring that cost me $212. That is the most amount of money I'd ever spent at one time in my life. But everything for me starts with her. Why did I come back to Oklahoma? Both of neither one of us had a college degree when we left. Um, When I left, I flunked out of college, which means I got a letter said, don't even bother to come back. Sandra was doing pretty good in school, so she dropped out to follow me, which to me is an amazing sacrifice in itself. In fact, her her parents hated me, hated me. And it took me a long, long time to figure it out. But later on, as I started to have kids, or we started to have kids, it dawned on me why they really, really did not like me. What I had done, they had put their daughter on a path to success, and they felt she was doing fine. And then this guy this flucking out of college pulls up and says, we're going to get married, and she's gonna, and she drops out of college to marry me. And so that's like their life plans just went ploop, just like that. So it was so bad that I wouldn't even call her mother by name. I used to call her that lady. (laughs) (laughs) I remember one time, I went, they live in Muskogee, so uh, maybe once or twice a year because we were all over the country. We come back to visit. I remember one time I went to the house, and she had uh, a little table in front of the front door, or just inside the front door. And you could see this picture of this guy there one of Sandra's old boyfriends. Eight by 12 photo right there. And so um, one day I got there and I said, I'm tired of this. I don't think I'm going to come in your house anymore. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to see that picture no more. I don't want to look at it. So I'm just going to drop Sandra off. Yeah. And her mother looked at me and had this snarky smile. And she says, does that picture bother you? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so we... We, we grew up, Sandra and I, we grew up together. Um, the thing I think that really, really helped me with her was I am successful in the military because she was willing to sacrifice, she was willing to move. We got our degrees about our first four or five years in the military between the two of us. Both of us going to school at night, both of us having kids. And what really meant something to me was every time she was a school teacher and every time she'd get a job, Within two years, they wanted to promote her to something, um, either principal or maybe working in administration. So at that time, just about the time she'd get a promotion, I'd have to transfer. And so she would moved with me. So I can't even tell you the number of times that she sacrificed her career just to follow me and just to support me. So I said, whenever I get out of the Army, from that point on, it's your life. We live it the way you want to. So we start out with, where do you want to live, or what do you want to do? So we thought about it for a while, we talked about it for a while, and she says, I want to come home. Yeah. And it, to me, it's amazing, because that, to me, talks a little bit about Oklahoma, because I was very happy with that decision. Having lived all over the world, and having lived all over the country, Oklahoma is a really, really good place. and. You know, you you get to jokes about Oklahoma. You don't hear them so much here, but when you're the rest of the country, you get all kind of jokes about Oklahoma. Um, But to me, my experiences with Oklahoma, my growing up in Oklahoma, even in segregation, had never caused me to not feel comfortable and feel loving about this particular state in in Oklahoma City. So when she said she wanted to come back home, I said, okay, but can we negotiate? And she said, what do you mean? I said, "Do we have to go to Muskogee? <laughs> <laughs> Do I have to be close to your parents?" <laughs> I said, Do we have to go to Muskogee. Yeah. yeah. Well, and she says, "No, just Oklahoma." And so we settled, settled on Oklahoma City. And so that's what made us come back.
1: Okay. Yeah. You said um, you said uh, <laughs> you said you were a nerd in college, but you flunked out. Why 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 did you flunk
0: out? If you were a nerd. Um. What was your dream at that point when you were in college? Yes. That was the problem. I didn't have a dream. I got to go back to Dr. Todd. Uh, When I was in high school here at Douglas High School, I had a counselor. His name was Melvin Todd, Dr. Melvin Todd. He became a doctor later on. He also became the first African-American principal of a major high school. He became principal of Northeast High School later on. And now he was the first African-American to principal a majority white high school. He later became a deputy superintendent of the Oklahoma City School Board, and he later became the deputy chancellor for higher education for the state of Oklahoma. And there's something called SAT. He was on the national board. But when I knew him, he was just a high school counselor. Um, neither one of my parents had gone to college. Both of my parents were relatively successful. I don't mean rich or anything like that, but my father was a cab driver, and then he became a fireman. And my mother did housework. But we never seemed, in, I, in my mind, to be struggling for anything. So I was doing good in school. But my parents never really talked to me about going to college. They were just like, OK, we're, we're doing the best we can. We just want you to do the best you can. Dr. Todd started beating up on me to prepare to go to college. and started talking to me about college and the college experience. And he pretty much demanded that I go to college. Okay, so I graduated from my high school. I go to college. Here's my mistake. My mistake was, is that okay, since the only thing I knew about was go to college, I didn't have an idea that college was just a step toward where you want to be. College is preparation. I saw college as the goal. (laughs) And so when I got to college, I had a great time. I enjoyed myself, because I'd accomplished my goal. And not understanding, the next thing I knew, and it took a, little, a few a few years, but the next thing I knew was I wasn't progressing because I didn't see the importance. I didn't understand the step. I was very, very immature. Mm-hmm. And so that's what caused me to flunk out of college. Yeah. After I left college, two things really happened that really turned my life around again. I've already talked about one of them. With Sandra choosing to go with me, that helped and caused me to grow up. The other thing that helped and caused me to grow up was going into the Army. And it was kind of funny. My mother was sorely disappointed that I flunked out of college. My dad was like, he didn't belong there anyway. He should have been. He shouldn't went in the Army in the first place. Yeah, he's been wasting years. Yes. Yeah. So um, I go into the Army. And the Army has something called sergeants. And these are middle level managers. And they saw something in me and decided to push me. They pushed me to go back to school at night. They later on pushed me to go to Officer Candidate School. And so really, in my mind, my life begins when I went in the Army. Yeah. Or I should say when Sandra and I went in the Army. <laughs> right, yeah. And the thing, like,
1: looking back at your story and the time, you know, during the time and the decades that you were growing up in, in you know, in kind of like your, the, the important years of growing up, you had a lot of examples of great leadership growing mm-hmm. up, right? Not just in the state. You know, you just mentioned Dr. Todd, but, you know, you've got Dr. King, Dr. George Henderson, Malcolm X, Clara Luper as well. Mm-hmm. Like you have all these important figures that are showing you how to really lead against some, you know, during segregation where literally half of the world is against you. Yes. Like, it, you know, it can't help. I mean, what is it that just growing up in, in tough circumstances really molds you and really builds character mm-hmm. and to look up to those people at that time not that I wish people grew up now in that situation, but I do wish people grew up in a little, you know, you, what I'm trying to say is when you grow up around a, a little <laughs> bit of a bad situation, right, and, and you develop so much character, that kids who develop nothing growing up easy.
0: Does that make a lot of sense? Can I talk to you about that? Yeah, I'd love to hear about it because okay. you've got some great experience. Um, I've, I've, I've talked about, and I think you know, or I, I can talk about it later, my experiences with Clara Looper. Yeah. I can talk about my experiences with Martin Luther King. I met Martin Luther King, and it was kind of funny. During my summers of 66 and the summers of 67, I sold Bibles door-to-door. Okay. Which in itself is a character builder. Yes. Anything Um, selling door-to-door is, right? Well, to me, and and that brings me to somebody else, too. There were guys in my life who are also giants in Oklahoma that you don't hear about too much. There's a guy by the name of Claude Evans. Um, He was uh, one of my fraternity brothers at Oklahoma State University. There was a guy by the name of Wilbur Thomas, another one of my fraternity brothers, and a guy by the name of Ken- Kenneth Kimbrough. Kenneth Kimbrough and Claude Evans had sold Bibles the summer before. That w- that meant the summer of 65, because they were mm-hmm. a to me. So the summer of 66, they talked me and Wilbur into going to Birmingham, Alabama to sell Bibles. And It's kind of interesting, because when you think about what was going on in the summer of 1966 and the summer of 1965, Birmingham, Alabama is not a place that you really want to be. For whatever reason, we didn't think about that. And it's really kind of interesting, because we worked for a company called the Southwest Company out of Nashville, Tennessee. And we really didn't know where we were going to go, where they were going to send us until we got there. So they send you you to uh, Tennessee. We go there for a week of training. Then they say, okay. Your group is going to go uh, to to Alabama, and so you get there, and the first thing that happens is uh, the guy that took me there, which was Claude, was Claude, dropped me off on a corner with a box of books and five dollars, <laughs> and me and my roommate James Alexander, another friend, and all of us are frat brothers too. That's <laughs> a, that's, that's a whole nother story. Um, we get. We, we, we are comfortable, and it's kind of scary when you think about it. Here we are, I think we're about 19 years old, and we're, we go to Alabama, do not know a single soul that didn't come there with us, and they drop you off on the corner. We were a of the fraternity called Alpha Phi Alpha. Um, James and I have a national book that tells where all, who all the members are. James picks up a number at random in Nashville, I mean in Birmingham, Alabama. And calls this guy and say, "Hey, uh, we're in Birmingham. We're here working for the summer, and we're looking for a place to stay. Can you help us?" The guy says, "Yeah, we have a frat house, and what we we need somebody to kind of take care of, be caretakers of the frat house. If you guys are willing to do that, you can stay there all summer, no charge." And we're like, "What?" Jackpot! <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we do that. Um, and, and 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 you talk about character builders. One of the things that, that I, I believe in very strongly is, is marketing and selling. In fact, I was talking to somebody even today. If you don't understand that selling is about selling yourself first, then you don't understand salesmanship. Because the product is okay, but you've got to sell yourself. Okay, now, here I am. I'm going door to door. I pick a street every day. And all the, all the houses on this side and all the houses on that side. So I'm going to the door and I'm going to put you in a place, here's somebody knocking on your door. And you get to the door, you're not happy to see that person because that person interrupted something that you were doing. If it not, wasn't nothing but sleeping, they interrupted that person. So you got to think about ways to get over that hurdle. Um, what I discovered was nobody was going to let me in their house if I walked up to their door mad sad, uh, unenergetic. So I had to build my energy. And so I had this thing that I used to say, in fact, James, my roommate, and I, we would walk down the street together and get so high, by the time we knocked on the first door, we knew that we were going to sell. And the thing was, we would just walk and say, I feel happy, I feel healthy, I feel terrific, I feel happy, I feel healthy, I feel terrific. And if you didn't feel that way, you just kept saying that until you did. So we'd go knock on the door and didn't sell a Bible. We go knock on the next door, got cursed out. Go knock on the next door. There's nobody home. Go knock on the next door. Um, There's somebody there, but you you didn't make a sale. So you knocked on five or six houses in a row. By then, it's easy to be discouraged. And what we decided was that we it's kind of I don't call it scientific, but after a week or so, I discovered that. Like if I knock on, if I talk to four people, I'm going to sell one. And so you think about that and you say, what does that mean? That means I had to get four people to listen to me. So one of the things to get people to listen to you, people want to listen to you if you're excited, if you are interesting, or if you have something that's important to them. So one of the things we did was I always feel that I am doing you a favor and a service by bringing this Bible to you. Yeah. I also am going to entertain you." (laughs) And it was amazing to me, I bring energy to it, and people would just come to the door and we would start talking, just because of my energy, I could see that I was attracting people to go forward. So then it's so important, and a part of my lessons are, is whatever you're doing, whatever it is, I don't care whether you like it or don't like it, if you can't be enthusiastic about it, you're wasting your time. Again, later on, because I, I also have an MBA, I learned as, as a part of a manager, you really, really have to kind of get your head into the game because you want to get other people's willing willing um, um, acquiescence to go along with what you're doing. So it ended up that I just felt that there was no such thing as, as a no answer. I learned that lesson that summer. I learned that if you keep at it long enough, you're going to succeed because to be honest with you, probably three out of four people that were selling Bibles would quit before the summer's over. My goal that summer, and this was summer's 1966, was to buy a used 1963 Chevrolet Impala SS. I don't know if you know anything about that oh, car. I love cars, so I do know about that. Okay, it. Yeah. that was what I wanted. Okay. By the time I got about two thirds of the way through the summer, I saw that I was making enough money that I was gonna pay my college off that year. And I could buy a new car. And seriously, when we came back, there was three of us that were new guys. One of them, one bought a GTO. Yeah. One bought a brand new uh, Chevrolet SS. Me, and the other guy bought the brand new Mustang. And when we hit campus at Oklahoma State, we were hot. <laughs> but oh, I would have loved to have seen you guys just rolling down, rolling the lesson, through the The lesson there was that. You got to be able to sell yourself, and you got to be able to self energize yourself, because sometimes everything around you is going bad, and you got to be able to bring yourself back up. So, that was to me the major lesson I learned that summer. I didn't even realize I was learning that lesson until much, much later, but that was the lesson I learned that summer. Um, Another is uh, Clara Looper. When I was 11 years old, um, Ms. Luper wrote this book called Brother President, and she turned it into a play. And the play was so good that the National NAACP asked her to come and present the play in New York and Washington, D.C. So, here again, my parents loved me, and they didn't want me too far out of their sight, so I wasn't allowed to go. But the kids that went and they saw when they left Oklahoma that they could eat in any restaurant they wanted to eat in, they could um, stay in any hotel they wanted to, and they were treated like real people, not just whatever. Yeah. So uh, they went up there. And then when they come back to the South, they see this environment. So Miss Looper had us. You know, the group was the NAACP youth youth group, and we often meet at her house. In fact, we always met at her house. But one time after they came back, we were meeting in our front yard, and we were just sitting out there talking. And I have to give Marilyn Luper credit. Marilyn is her daughter. And so Marilyn's sitting out there. And if you haven't met Marilyn yet, I don't know if you know who Marilyn Luper is. Marilyn Luper is, again, a community leader in, in Oklahoma City. And she is really, really a sharp person. Uh, but at that time, Marilyn was She's, she was in my class. So she's really fiery. So she goes on a rant. And I mean, a rant. Maryland, if you know Maryland, Maryland goes on lots of rants. <laughs> so she goes on this rant, and whatever comes out of her mouth is the truth. But it, there's no buffalo in it, okay? <laughs> so she starts talking about how horrible it is in Oklahoma City that we can't eat in restaurants. And the thing that people kind of miss as they start thinking about the city many of our parents would ride the bus to downtown, and right on Main Street between <clears throat> Broadway and Robinson, all the buses would stop right there and people would do transfers. Like, say, for example, if your mother or your father worked out at Nichols Hills, they would ride to downtown and they'd do a transfer right there, and then they'd ride the bus out to the other, to Nichols Hills or wherever they're going to do domestic work. The, if you stop and think about it a little bit farther, you think about, okay, when they stopped for that break, there was no place that they could use the restroom. There was no place that they could eat. There was no place that they could sit. They would just have to bear with it until they got to where they had to get to. Okay, you got Greens right across the street. You got John A. Brown's right there. You got um, uh, all the stores that are right there on Main Street. That's where all the the major stores used to be at that time. Uh, We could go in there and buy stuff, but we couldn't buy food. We couldn't sit down. But they would take our money. So Maryland goes into this rant. And she decides that we need to do something about this. And she's ranting about it and talking about we need to go down and challenge the the system. Her mother comes out, because she's our leader, and she says, if we're going to do this, we need to do it right. You know, we need to do it right. So she says, we need to train ourselves in such a way that when we go do this, we remain together, we remain respected, and we understand how to deal with problems as they come up. So we had classes to teach us how to deal with when people curse you out, if somebody hits you, what to do, if somebody spits on you, what to do, not to overreact. We had classes that taught us how to walk in to the restaurant in a calm way and sit down. And when the waitress walks up and says, you don't belong here, and said, I'd like to order a hamburger and a Coke. And they will say no, we're not going to sell you a hamburger and a Coke. And I said, well, I'll just sit here until you give me a hamburger and a Coke. (laughs) And we that's what we did, and we would have something we call song practice, where we would go to Calvary Baptist Church here in Oklahoma City, where we would meet, we and we'd march downtown to whichever restaurant we chose to go to that day. Uh, we would do one restaurant at a time. But what Miss Looper taught me was one: if you see something needs to be done, don't randomly go into it. Be planned, be, be have a, have an organized plan. Be organized. Understand how you're going to deal with problems, and for lack of a better term, use your intelligence to deal with things in such a way that you're outthinking thinking others. You know, the idea to use children was intentional. yeah, Because people are much less likely to hurt a child than they are to hurt an adult. I'm not even totally sure, as I thought back on it, that this would have been successful if we'd had adults down there. The other is that adults would probably react different. <laughs> You couldn't tell them to sit there. It was kind of funny because she also had what I call control people. Um, have you ever heard of a guy by the name of Portwood Williams? I have not, no. Okay, Portwood Williams used to build, rebuild furniture in our neighborhood. Portwood Williams was the kind of the male figure there that if he thought one of us was losing our temper, he'd come grab us and pull us out okay. and take us and, and you know, put somebody else in. Yeah. Portwood Williams also happens to have a grandson named Kanye West. No way. Yes, absolutely. So that's
1: Kanye West's connection to Oklahoma. That's
0: Kanye West's connection to Oklahoma. His mother grew wow. up here, and his and his and his uncle was also one of our city. I mean, his uncle was also one of our sitting kids. Yeah. So that's his connection to Oklahoma, Portwood Williams. Wow. Um, but his mother left and went to I think Chicago and then sure. to L.A. But I just want to share that with you because it's kind of funny it how is, yeah. you go all the way around the world and you come back. So that's all I'm going to say about Kanye West today.
1: <laughs> to, to, on that note, Kanye West was the first person I ever saw live in concert, and he was in and it was in Wales. Wow. Yeah.
0: Wow. How small is that? Crazy. It's, well, you, you you know the man is a genius. Yes, he's very good with his words. Yes. <laughs> his actions may be a little different, well, but his words are great he's he's he he he's he's a genius yeah. you know, and you sit there and you watch this person come from nowhere to become a billionaire, mm-hmm. and so we'll, we'll leave it at that yeah <laughs> okay
1: <laughs> so this this the, the Mr. Williams was then the character that really looked after from from the male side mm-hmm. and pulled you out when mm-hmm. you were getting hey, I think you you know to help
0: you not like, get locked in jail or just... If, if you're sitting a there mobile. and somebody comes by and slaps you, sometimes you want to... Oh, of course you do. ...respond. Yeah, it's just... And Miss Luper had taught us, don't respond, yeah. just sit there. If they curse at you, just sit there. If they spit on you, just sit there. Wow. If they hit you, just sit there. Because the only thing you want to do is occupy that seat. Yeah. The objective is, is that if we are occupying all the seats... They can't sell anything. Okay. And so we just sit there and wait them out. And normally, it'll take a couple of days. And I think with greens, it took, took three days before they opened up. Wow. Um, I think with Crest, it took a little bit longer. Johnny Brown's took two months. And there is a cafeteria that I think took two years. Yeah. But what happens is, is that we would go there, we would just sit there. And as long as we're sitting there, nobody else can come in and eat because we've occupied all the seats. And we would sit there maybe an hour, and then we, if we get tired, another kid would come in and take a seat, and you go take a break. Uh, some of us got arrested. Um, I have a cousin, her name is Joyce Henderson. And Joyce would get mad because if, if we were, one of the days if we got arrested, I remember she, ta- I never got arrested either. Ms. Luper got arrested 28 times. But Joyce would be, I want to get arrested, I want to get arrested, I want to get arrested. And so the one time that she was there, that they arrested her group, she had taken a bathroom break. (laughs) And she came back, and from then to now, she's still mad about that. (laughs) She's still mad about that. Now, just to tell you a little bit about, you know, the the kids I grew up with. I've already told you about Marilyn a little bit. Joyce Henderson was also our song leader when we would come up, Miss Looper gets kind of built up and, and singing. Joyce Henderson now, have you ever heard of class in advanced studies school? Uh-huh. Joyce Henderson started that school. And she was the first principal there and she created the concept. And so to me, sometimes I feel like I am a person of my environment because sure. of all of these people there. You know, I talk about Dr. Todd. I talk about Miss Looper. I haven't even talked about my parents.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, my parents were great, great people. In fact, it was kind of interesting that what I, t- I talked about my dad. Well, I'll take that back. I'm going to talk about my dad tomorrow okay. when I'm inducted into the military hall of fame. Congratulations. Um, well, just another thing that other people thought of. <laughs> just another hall <laughs> <hole> of fame. <laughs> okay. Uh, but. One of the things I, I thought was interesting is my dad and I never had a two-way conversation until I was 24 years old. And you say, what does that mean? That means that as a father, his position was, and his job was, was to tell me things, not to listen to the silly mess that came out of my mouth. So he would tell me stuff, and if I started to say something, he'd just walk away. He said, you know, i have nothing to say I, I, that, that interests me. So when I was 24 years old, I was a second lieutenant in the Army, and uh, the movie Patton came out. And so he comes up and he said, Stan, um, you want to go see the movie Patton? I said, sure. And I'm like, Dad never goes to movies. So we go see the movie Patton. And he's there, and he looks around in the movie, and he says, I remember when Patton did that. I remember when Patton said that. I remember when we did that, I, you know, I'm sitting there, my dad served with Patton in World War II, and I'm 24 years old, and this is the first time I ever heard about it. No idea. (laughs) Okay? So you sit there, and you're going through this, and later on, I go back and I asked him, I said, Dad, you really served with Patton? He said, sure. He said, that's what I did in World War II. I said, you never talk about it. He said, well, I just did my job. And I just remember the Battle of the Bulge, which was the biggest war- battle in World War II, second biggest battle, you, you got the invasion. Um, when he says, well, the thing I did in that battle was when the Patton's army had to make a swing to the right to go to direct to, 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 for lack of a better term, pull out the 101st Airborne, which was completely surrounded by Germans there had to be ammunition placed out ahead of the combat troops to make sure that they could move fast enough, and they had ammunition ready when they would move forward. And so, like, they moved 200 miles. And so my father was one of those that went out and made sure that the ammo dumps were in the right places and gave it to the soldiers. So he's like, yeah, we were out there ahead of everybody else. They don't talk about it, but we were. (laughs) And, you know, and, and that's about the way he talked about it. Later on, my father passed. I went through his rockets. In an army there's something called a DD-214, which shows your military rocket. Mm -hmm. He had four, four bronze stars. And I'm like, what? Never talked about it. Never, never ever talked about it. He had four bronze stars. And I said, if you had four bronze stars in a segregated army where they don't give African Americans awards, what did you do, (laughs) you know? And I'm like, wow. Yeah. So that, to me, was my dad. Uh, my dad was one of the first African-American firemen on the Oklahoma City Fire Department when they integrated the fire department. Uh, my dad taught me lessons all the time. In fact, I kind of didn't like him. <laughs> I, did re- I respected him, yeah. but he would put me through all kinds of circles. I remember when I was a, a junior in high school, and I decided to go to the prom. I should say, I, yeah, this is a big deal. I wanted to go to yeah. the prom. So we had a car and a truck, and so I go in, and if you don't give my dad time to think about stuff when you ask him something, the answer's gonna be no. So the first lesson he learned me was like I had one of many. So about a month before the prom, I go in and say, Dad, can I take the car to the prom? He looks at me, doesn't say nothing, just walks off. I'm like, did he hear me? <laughs> Did he hear me? So I'm like, I don't know what to say. So I go back and ask him probably about a week later. Yeah. He comes back, nah, I don't want you driving the car. You can take your truck. And we had this big, red, ugly truck that he used to do your work in. And I'm like, I am not going to drive the truck to the prom. So then I go to the intercessor, who's my mom. And I said, Mom, I don't know what to do. I'm just going to have to maybe ride with somebody else because I'm not going to ride the truck. So about a week later, my father comes back and he says, I've thought about it. I think you can take the car. You can get it at this time. When you pick up your date, that's fine. When you leave, when you get to the prom, I want call a phone call from you. When you leave the prom, I want a phone call from you. If you go anywhere else, I want a phone call from you. And I'm like, golly. But I was happy because under those circumstances, that was the way I was going to get the car, and he let me have the car. What I really appreciate about my dad was my dad set standards. And he was unrelenting in the standards that he set. And I think it's important to understand that we have to have high standards if we're going to succeed. And so that was, that was one of the many, many lessons I got from my dad. Um, he didn't talk unless he had something to say. <laughs> Um, It's kind of interesting because, you know, day to day, every day, my mother raised us. But my dad was always there, always there. In fact, as I think back on it, it seemed to me like my mother was in charge of raising us, and he was in charge of making sure we didn't mess with my mom. My mother might spank me three times in one day. My father might spank me three times a year, and the spanking from him would be, In his mind, if I disrespected his wife or my mother, that was was a sure (laughs) spanker-getter. But, and he also had this knack. My mother would spank us when she got mad. So you didn't know when one was coming until you got the licks. (laughs) My dad would say, okay, I'm gonna spank you for that. Come see me on Tuesday. Oh, he'd make you wait for it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is the worst. You just want to get it over in he, and done with it. And this might be Seredia or something like that. Yeah. He said, cause, I mean, he was a farmer, so he worked. So my mother would call him and tell him something we did. And he put, put him on the phone. He said, I'm going to take care of this on Tuesday. <laughs> 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 and so he put you in that position of, OK, I know it's coming. But he was very straightforward, like he'd sit down and say, okay, you're going to get three legs," And he'd give us three legs. So you knew. With my mother, it was until our arm got tired. <laughs> but my mother also was a very Christian lady. The things I know about the Bible, the things I know about Christ, what brought Christ into my life was my mother. Um, and she, not only me, I think she did it with, I don't want to say hundreds of people, but like she was a national leader in our church. And she would work with us to make sure that we had a spiritual background and a spiritual guidance. And that's not to say my father wasn't a Christian, but he didn't put the time into it that my mother did, if that makes sense. I don't know where I was going with that. All of this, yeah. But you got it.
1: I love it. I, the The one thing I love as well about your dad is like there's such a lesson in just doing the work. You don't need to talk about it, mm-hmm. right? Just I'm, it was like back to your point. You know, you're like it was my job. Like, yeah. We just went in there, we did our job, mm-hmm. and and also just the, you know, because a lot of people I think in today's society are I'm gonna go do this, and you know, like and then you you know you speak to them in six months. Oh well, what happened with that? And, and nothing happened, right? Whereas just getting your head down, going out, accomplishing something, working towards something, and then you reached it. Uh, You know, inner satisfaction is much more than, look
0: at me, look at what I've done. Uh -uh. My father really didn't brag about nothing, but if he ever said he was going to do something, you could absolutely count on it. If he ever said you could do, do something, you could count on it. I just remember that he would, one of his rules was be lazy. He didn't call it that, I called it that. Yeah. And to me, being lazy means do it right the first time so you don't have to do the whole thing all over again. Because if you didn't do something right the way he wanted, he didn't have you to pick up where you left off. You'd have to go all the way back to the beginning and start all over. Because he wanted every piece and wanted you to understand that every part of it was important. And so, to me, I have a rule called be lazy, which comes from him because of the fact that he would make us do everything over perfect if we didn't do it the first time yeah. so to me being lazy means do it right the first time then you don't have to do it again mm-hmm.
1: yeah yeah so it sounds like then you have to you know when you when when you funk out of college and, and and you guys decide to go in the army that's where it comes from dad's Fact, you think mm-hmm. I'm going to go in the military because I know that dad did
0: that and he had a lot of respect for him and he had a great career I'm going to go follow in those footsteps well it came out that way but the truth was I was embarrassed okay. I didn't want to come back home Because I was too embarrassed. When you flunk out of college and you know that people in your community have raised scholarships for you and people in your community have great beliefs on you, it's kind of embarrassing to go back and say, I didn't do it. Mm -hmm. And so I just went in the Army. My mother was extremely upset. (coughs) My dad was like, hey, that's where you should have been in the first place. That's where he wanted you to go. My father was fiercely proud of his military career, fiercely proud. And that, to me... Meant a lot too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's,
1: you know, you, you know, obviously your dad went through, you know, World War II and was there, and then obviously you did Vietnam as mm-hmm. well. And thankfully, people in the military today really, we don't have a world war to fight with, thankfully, uh-huh. but I'm sure they're doing things that we don't know about. Um, but it, the, the big thing for you, you know, you, you, obviously you became a colonel. Mm-hmm. Like, you obviously have a very distinguished military career as mm-hmm. well. What was that? When you look back at that career in the military, what are the moments that stand out for you that, you know, just think— and they might not be the highlight moments that most people might think of, you know, being in in charge of Fort with and stuff like that. Well,
0: let me just roll through a few of them, and and we can take it. Um, One, going in and understanding—and I don't know why. My sergeant started putting responsibility on me from the first Mm. day. Um, I was made an acting jack. Have you ever heard that term before? Uh-huh. That means that you got real sergeants and you got recruits that they kind of put in charge of the other recruits. Uh-huh. I mean, the first day there, they made me an acting jack. And I said, okay, how am I going to make all of these people that I don't even know, and we're all here together, and they just took like a little band and put a sergeant stripes on me. And so I just said, hey, we'll just organize and talk about it, and we get it done. That worked. Um, and I don't know what they saw in me to give me that, but they did. But what I really saw was the attention that my sergeants paid specifically to me, but to, to others. And you think about it, it didn't seem like it at the time because they were always always hollering at you and screaming at you and having you to do stuff. but. You could start to see, if you look back on it, from a mature standpoint, and that's what they did. They made me grow up. Yeah. They really, really made me grow up. And I could see the corollary between the way my father treated me and the way my sergeants treated me, if that makes sense. Right. And so a part of it was that. And then later on, when I got to my first units, it was my sergeants there saying, you can do more than this. You're better than this. Um, and you know, you're talking to a sergeant. And he says, you, "You say, well, I went to four, four. I got four years of college, and I flunked out." And they're like, "What?" <laughs> and so they said, um, "You know, you can go back to school here." And I said, "What do you mean?" So they start telling me about the programs that the military have, and I go to start going to school at night. Then I get to my next unit, and they start telling me about um, maybe, have you considered being an officer? Because you got all this college, you know. And I said, hadn't really thought about it, to tell the truth, I came in the Army and talked to my recruiter, and they gave me an assignment in the United States so I could avoid Vietnam. I knew that when I flunked out of college, I was going to get drafted in two months. Sure. Knew that. So I said, well, let me join first so I can have a choice of where, where my assignment's going to be. Yeah. So I ended up going to Vietnam anyway. But, <laughs> but that, that was the piece. Later on, after I went off to Kennedy School, I was in the 82nd Airborne and my officers there, again, I'm, we're talking about my colonel, talked to me, told me that I should really consider a career in the military. And I said, not interested. I just <laughs> whatever. Want, want to do my time and move on. Um, after I'd been in, in the 82nd in north in North Carolina for about a year and a half, I came down on orders to go to Korea. And they've been talking to me, and I says, "Okay, if I want to go, if I'm thinking about staying in the military, and I talked to Sandra about this, I said maybe I need to go somewhere where there's war, just to see if I like to see not to see if I like it, but to see if this is a career that I want see to if pursue." Twitter, right? Yeah, yeah. So I go in and I see my battalion commander, a lieutenant colonel, and I say, "I'm on notice for career. Is there a possibility I could go to Vietnam?" He looked at me and smiled and said, are you crazy? <laughs> and I said, no, I just, I, I just, if I'm going to go overseas, why don't I go, this will help me make a decision. And so he said, I can make that happen in, in one day. <laughs> so I ended up going to Vietnam. I get to Vietnam, again, opportunities. I walk into a unit and there's a, there's a colonel there and I'm, a li- I'm still a lieutenant. And he walks in my very first day on the job, and he says, I'm not going to blame you for this mess, but I want to fire all your sergeants, all of them. And so I look at him, and I say, I would ask you to give me an opportunity to work with my sergeants to get this mess straightened out. And he says, I don't think I should do that, but since you're a new lieutenant, I'll be back in a week, and if it's not fixed, I'm going to fire you and them. Yes, sir. (laughs) So we sit down and we fix the problem. And so that started me to understand that you had to be accountable always. That also helped me to understand that if you want to get things done, it's not about the equipment. It's not about whatever. It's about the people. Always about the people. Always about the people. And so you have to have a way to motivate people. And they have to believe in you, and they have to trust you as a leader. So that was a part of what I learned. Uh, about f- five or six months later, they got promoted me and put me and gave me a company command in Vietnam, which is unheard of for a lieutenant to get a command in Vietnam, but I had one. Yeah. I come back out of Vietnam, and I'm pretty happy. And not so much for what's going on in Vietnam, but because I think I want to see in the Army and stay in. So my wife is here in Oklahoma and she's working with Southwestern Bell. She Southwestern Bell has just been sued about their racial mix of people they had working for. Them. And so she got like the time I was in Vietnam to help themselves out, they promoted her like three times in a year. And so she's very happy. In fact, they were so happy with her, they said, we don't care what your husband's doing, we'll find a job for him when he comes back. Great. And so Sandra says, well, I think we should take that opportunity. I said, I really like the military, so let's sit down and talk about it. And so we both agreed to follow my military career. Yeah. That, again, shows how my wife believed in me, and she was willing to follow my lead. And to me so much of what i've done and who i am is because of the fact that she showed the faith in me. Yeah. And i don't know i guess you probably seen spouses that seem to be cutting you to pieces all the time. And because of us, the way we talked to each other, it was always a joint decision whatever we did. Um, i remember when we started going back to school and we said, well both of us can't go to school at the same time cuz we got two kids. And so we would say, my turn, your turn. My turn, your turn. And so that's the, that's the way we went back to school. Um, to me, there were several things. I don't want to spend a whole three days talking about my military career. But I, I do want to talk about when I was Battalion Commander in Alaska, you were talking about things that, that, that are character building.
1: Yeah.
0: I had a two-star general. His name was Tom Fields. The meanest man I ever worked for in my entire life. I mean, this man was so mean that I got to tell you how mean he was. He's a two-star general division commander. My boss is a one-star that works for him, so he's my second-level commander. And so, but he also is my senior raider, and I'm a, I, I command a unit that has about 700 people in it. So he goes all over, and I've been there about three months. He has not visited my unit one single time. And I'm like, this guy doesn't even know me and he's my boss. I said, so I need to do something to let him, so I go see the one-star general and I said, um, what do I need to do to get General Fields to come visit me? He looks at me and says, I can fix that if you want me to. <laughs> he says, you've been in this, this division for a while. And he says, he hasn't been to visit you. General Fields only goes where he thinks there's problems. and but I can fix it. If you really want to see him and you want to come visit your unit, because if, if, if there's not a problem there, he will find one and he will make one." Yeah. <laughs> and he says, but I can fix it. I said, sir, leave it alone, I'm perfectly happy. Um, several things happened with me in that command. One was we had a winter exercise that lasted 28 days, and in a division, it's a combat unit made up of infantry. And in our case, airborne soldiers. Um, you also have to provide communications for that. I'm the communication signal loss for the entire division. So my soldiers are scattered out all over. Um, that particular exercise, it was called brim frost. It got down to minus 56 degrees for days at a time. We were out there for 28 days. It never got above minus 18 for, for 28 days. Um, We're in Alaska, and we train for that kind of weather. In 28 days, I never had a soldier to get frostbite. I never had a soldier to get sick. Every soldier did their mission, and we could provide communications for the division all that time. My unit got a special award for that. So later on, he has an airplane, so he says, "I want you to go up and talk to some of these other units about your commitment to doing what you do." So we're in an airplane; it's just me and him. So I'm talking to him one day, and you know, you you, you sitting there, you think about how do I ask him this question. So I said, "The only way to do it is just ask him." I said, "Why are you so mean?" <laughs> 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 I said, "I said you got hardworking soldiers; you got a great division." I said, why are you so mean? Because, you know, you, you'll see him, like, I remember we had a unit that had, it was airborne, I'm not the airborne, the air, the air mobile unit, they have, they have helicopters. And so it's a whole brigade, which is about 3,000 3, people. So we would do these division runs about once every month or so, and we'd run at least five miles. And so he'd start to run, and then at the end of the run, he'd get up on this podium and watch the whole division go by. So, the whole division goes by, and the Airborne Brigade, I mean, the, the Air Mobile Brigade, he's, where are they? <laughs> and so, they're about 20 minutes behind the rest of the division. So he looks at them, and he just gets really, really mad. So he had to go somewhere else that day. So he gets in his airplane, he takes off and goes. And as the airplane is going there, he tells the pilot to turn the airplane around. We're going to go back and fix this situation. So he lands, there, runs, lands the airborne, lands the plane, and has this colonel do another five mile run that day. And so here's how I learned the lesson. When I asked him, Why are you so mean? he says, Colonel Evans, every day or every night, I lay in bed and I try to think of ways to stress you guys out. <laughs> I said, What? He says, it's intentional. I lay in bed intentionally trying to think of ways to stress you guys out. He says, let me tell you why. He said, when he was a major, he did a second tour in Vietnam. And he says he was in this unit, and as he was walking through this unit, it was first day, first day back in Vietnam, and he saw sloppy soldiers. And he saw this unit where people were not doing what they are supposed to be doing. The commander, he could tell, was not doing what he was supposed to be doing. And he said, well, this is not my unit. He just kind of walked through it and went on. That unit got hit that night. Yeah, got hit that night, and he said there was a creek going through that unit's area, and he said that creek had more blood in it yeah. that night than it had water. And he says I will never, ever again, as long as I live, walk by a situation that needs to be corrected and not corrected. Yeah, he said it's my responsibility for twenty, I think it was twenty-one thousand soldiers to make sure that you guys are the best you can be. If I can stress you out in training, if I can stress you out in day-to-day, you guys will be better soldiers when you go into combat because you're like, ah, this is nothing compared to General Fields. (laughs) And that's the way he felt. And it's kind of interesting because when he told me that, I didn't become mean, but I understood his philosophy, and I built that into my philosophy of how I work with people i become very hard on standards. I want people to match standards. It's like one of the things we do at the the law school in diversity, sometimes people come in and they say, okay, this person is struggling, so let's lower the standard. No, Lord, no. We work with the person to raise them up to the standards. The key to me is, do we ever want to produce a substandard lawyer? A substandard lawyer is not gonna help his client get to what they want to do. So we got to make sure, even as we are doing diversity or whatever we're doing, the lawyers we put out have to be as good as they possibly can be. You know, you can't look at a person, a client walks in and say, "Well, I want a lawyer that went to Harvard, not a lawyer that went to OU." We think that the lawyers who go to OU should be just as good, just as capable, and have the same desire to help people as lawyers coming out of one of these top schools on the East Coast. So, General Fields. I knew that before I worked for him, but at the same time, I learned it because of the moments we spent on that airplane and understanding how he thinks of things to stress people out. The other lesson I learned out of that is stress is good. Not um, intentional stress is what I'm talking about and understanding that. I teach children's church at my church. And sometimes the parents get mad at me. <laughs> and they get mad at me because I will do things like, I want to teach the kids how to pray. And I teach them to pray and what things they should pray for. I said in every prayer, pray for a challenge. And the parents are like, Why, you should tell them to pray for peace and pray for calmness and all that. I say, yeah, it's OK to do that. But understand that if God loves you, God is going to keep you in a protective situation. And is he, as, is, if God is challenging you, he already knows that you can overcome the challenge if you just work with him. Yeah. So it's about teaching you to grow. And I said, if we aren't growing, we're going backwards. And so I teach children to pray for challenges. If I, if you ever hear me pray in church, there will always be a challenge in it. Because I want people to understand that if God, if the God is the God we want, he wants us to grow. He doesn't want us to be static. So challenge is okay, stress yeah. is okay
1: hope you enjoyed that incredible episode part one with Colonel Stan Evans he did tell me just to call him Stan but I just can't do that so most people know him as Dean Evans as well uh, at Oklahoma Law uh, School but we will get into that in part two but thanks so much for listening Uh, part two will be out shortly and we'll catch you next episode cheers oklahoma business down in el reno they're also in bethany as well so people in the bethany area know the diffies really well but if you're looking for anything new used um ford lincoln or whatever i'm sure they could find anything you want um check them out DiffyFord.net, and then on instagram at diffieford lincoln
0: thank you for listening thank you for listening we are inspired by those around us and hope that you are too